like many of you, I am not a native Prescottonian. Uh, I moved here six and a half years ago. Our family left central Phoenix and moved to Prescott. Uh, it was not a move we were anticipating. We weren't saving for it, planning for it. It just kind of happened in a, a few uh, short months. And so we moved here. We made a major shift. We had always lived in apartments so that we could be close to our jobs um, and good transportation in Phoenix and have a single car. But moved up here, we, we bought a house and kind of just changed what we were doing. But while we were in that season of apartment life, uh, our last season, we, we had three kids uh, with us in our apartment. And um, it was kind of laid out like, like this, not like Camelback Mountain, but like, imagine this is our apartment, this rectangle. And over here was our room. In the middle was the living room and the dining room and the kitchen. And the far end was uh, our kids' bedrooms and a bathroom over there. And every night, it seemed like, because they were so young, someone would cry out in the middle of the night. So my wife would elbow me, you know, wake up, go deal with it, you know. And so I would get up and go across what I called like the room of despair, you know, because it, it was the dark living room. And I just knew at some point I was going to step on something. I just knew the most vulnerable part of my body was going to be in pain. And one of the common sources of that pain was my three-year-old son's Legos. See, see Legos— and beach sand and glitter all have something in common. You cannot contain them. They, they always end up where you don't want them. And no matter how hard you try to clean them up, it is just a losing battle. And so every night I would intentionally lay out my path from their room to my room and back. And, hey, there's no Legos here. And then inevitably at 3 o'clock in the morning, I would step on something. Words would come to mind that I can't speak in the middle of a sermon, and, um, and I would just be like, oh, I can't believe that I missed that one. See, what I discovered in those moments of pain is that what you don't see in the dark can hurt you. The things that you don't see, that you don't know are out there, the things that you don't acknowledge, the things that are surprises, they have the potential to hurt you and to hold you back. And what we've been doing over the last couple weeks in this series called God With Us as we move towards Christmas is exploring this theme of light and dark and, and the, the difference of what happens when we walk in the dark versus we walk in the light that Jesus seeks to bring. And last week we said this, we said that God can only meet us where we are, not where we wish we were. And so it's important this Christmas season to, to begin to get honest with ourselves and certainly honest with God and maybe even with each other about where we are because that's the place where God wants to meet us. That's the place where he wants to begin to transform us. And last Sunday at this table, you got to hear an amazing story from Josh and Liz who are part of our band sharing about a time in their marriage when they were ready to call it quits. They experienced God being with them, and over the last three and a half years, they've just experienced profound transformation and change as God with us has transformed them and transformed their marriage. But today we're going to build on where we started last week, and here's our big idea for today if you're taking notes. God doesn't just come near us just so that we can know about him. He comes near us so that we can know him personally. God isn't just with us so that we can gain knowledge or information about him. No, he's with us so that he can know us personally. And we're going to see and explore that from a passage of scripture that we touched on last week, but we're going to dive into a whole lot more deeply today. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to open up to the book of John chapter 1. John's about three quarters of the way through the Bible. It's one of four accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And John, 
We were in this passage last week, but there just was so much more there that we didn't get to that I want to dive back into it. And if you don't have a Bible today, that's great. Catherine will keep you uh, up on the right slide here on the screen. Here's how this passage begins. John writes, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He, and he's referring to Jesus here, was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not, recognize, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, I pray that this morning we would experience hearts, minds, and ears that are open to you. May we receive what it is that you're trying to speak to us this morning through your word. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning, what I want to do from that passage in John chapter 1 is to share with you three surprises about this idea, God with us. Three things that might not be natural or intuitive that you might naturally end up with on your own. And I encourage you, a couple of these, they may be hard for you to swallow. So just hang with me as we kind of flesh these out. If you're taking notes, the first one is this. Not everyone wants God with us. This idea we're talking about in this series of God with us, not everybody wants that. What we see in the text back here in John 1 is two really interesting things. The first thing is it says that, that, that Jesus came into the world, the world that he was in, the world that he created, and the world did not recognize him. He was present in this world that he made. He was present physically there, but the world missed him. It didn't see him. He was present right there next to them, with them, and yet they did not get it. We live in a world that is um, struggling with FOMO, fear of missing out, if you haven't heard the term before. And it's the reason why some of you who've planned events around this time of year struggle so much to get hard commitments from people. Because they may not say this out loud, but truthfully, they haven't committed yet because they're waiting on a better offer from somebody else. And they'll come to your party if they don't get a better offer, but they're afraid of missing out on somebody else's offer so they don't commit. It's one of the reasons why sometimes we have a hard time saying yes or saying no. We're just, ah, I'm missing out on something. And, and maybe the greatest thing we should have FOMO about is missing out on Jesus's presence. I mean, have you ever had a moment in your life where you missed out on God with you? You were going through something, maybe something hard, something difficult, something challenging. And it's only when you looked back, you said, man, God was with, there, with me right there, but I had no idea. God was walking with me through that, but I, I wasn't aware of it. See, sometimes God is with us and we're the last one to realize it. And so what John says here, he says that Jesus comes into this world and the world didn't recognize him. But he goes on, he says that the people that he came for, his own people, his own people didn't even receive him. So it wasn't just that they didn't even recognize him. Some people said, I'm not even going to embrace that. I'm not even going to embrace you. When you came and you came for me, I'm not going to receive that. I don't want that. Don't mistake the case. The Christmas story is a story of universal appeal, not universal acceptance. 
The Christmas story is available to everybody. When Jesus comes into the world, his light is for everyone. John later will say, for God so loved the world. That's everyone. That's universal appeal. But don't get it wrong. Not everyone accepts that appeal. Anyone can experience Jesus's presence and can experience the transforming power of God with us. But not everyone wants it. Not everybody wants God to be with them. Because that would mean that they have to face some things. That means they'd have to embrace some things. It might mean they have to change some things. So the first surprising truth is not everybody wants God with us. The second surprising truth is that God with us opens the door to enter his family. We often talk about or think about the idea of Jesus being a baby at Christmas. We think about him being born, him being in Mary's womb, and him entering into the world. But but John doesn't stop there. In his, in his passage here in John chapter 1, he builds on this. After saying there are some who didn't receive him, he goes on and he says, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. What, what is John saying here? He's saying that something has to happen in order for us to be children of God. It's not until we receive him that we're actually a part of his family, that we're actually children of God. Put another way, no one is born into God's family. You may have been born into a family that went to church, but that doesn't mean you were born into God's family. According to this text, you have to be adopted into God's family as you receive Jesus. All of us were born into creation. We were born into this world. We, but we weren't born reconciled to God in relationship to him. It's only, as John says, as we receive him that we gain the right to be children of God, born not of the will of our flesh or the will of man or natural descent, our family, but being born of God. Now, some people have recognized this, and they've taken this down a path that we should not walk. There are people in this world who need to join God's family and be adopted in, but sometimes the tendency, if you've embraced Jesus and received him, is to look at others and treat others in a way that would never draw them to him. Sometimes followers of Jesus who become part of his family, they turn into keyboard warriors and bullhorn buyers. And I don't know about you, I've been a pastor for almost 20 years, and I have yet to meet a person who said, you know what, Scott, this person was shaming me online, and I just decided I wanted what they were talking about, you know? This person was making me feel miserable, they were making me feel terrible about my life, and you know what, I just wanted more of that. I love what Madeline LaEngle says about how people come, especially this time of year, to receive what Jesus offers them. Here's what she says. She says, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe and not by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but we draw them by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want it with all their hearts to know the source of that light. See, what I have heard on occasion after occasion from old and young men and women, people who grew up around church and people who knew nothing of the Bible, is that they saw something or they heard something that began to draw them in, that awakened something within them that they didn't even know was present. 
When you're in a dark room and suddenly a door is open, people tell you, move towards the light. Go towards the light. Well, that's essentially what Madeline Engel is saying here. That our calling, especially this time of year, is to reflect the light of Jesus. A light that isn't ours, a light that is him. And point people to him, that light that is so lovely, that as they move towards that light, they move towards him. That they might not just experience a new set of beliefs. They might be born into a new relationship with God. Because God doesn't come near us so we can know about him. He comes near us so we can know him personally. That's why Jesus came. That we might know him personally. The last surprising truth I want to share with you this morning is that God with us gives us what we need. Grace, but also truth. We don't just need one or the other. We need both. And what John says here in verse 14 is he says the word, and that's his phrase for Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we're not first century Hebrews, so we're going to miss out on a little nuance here. But that word dwelt in English is translated from the same word that would have been used to describe the tabernacle. Back in the Old Testament, in the books of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and into Joshua, the people carried with them this tabernacle. It was a set of tents that represented the place of meeting where God would come and be present among the people as they wandered from Egypt into the Promised Land over 40 years. Moses would enter the tabernacle and go into the holiest of that place he would experience and be present with God and speak to him so much so that his face would literally shine when he left that place because of being present with God. And the word that's used here for Jesus dwelling among us when he's born at Christmas is the same word that would have been used for tabernacling with the people. And so anybody who was in on that history or knew that story would have said, hey, what, what John is saying is in the same way God was present in the tabernacle with the Israelites in the wandering and then in the promised land, God is now present with us in Jesus. And he isn't present in a tent of meeting. He's present in a body, the word who became flesh. And I think that's not an unintentional act on God's part. God knew that we needed to know him and not just know about him. If our need was to know about God, he could have sent a scroll or an email, or a PDF, or an encyclopedia. No, he knew that we needed to know him personally, and that's why Jesus came. See, the problem is, it's not that God needs to know us. No, God already knows all there is to know about us. In fact, God knows you better than you know you. I know that's a shocking statement to make in 2022, because we are being told that we are the resident experts on our truth and our experience and our identity. But even better than you know all those things about you, God knows those things about you. He knows your own motivations, your own struggles and insecurities, your thoughts. He knows those things better than you. And that's not bad news. It's actually good news. I love how Scott Sauls describes this. He says, only in Jesus are we fully known and fully loved, thoroughly exposed, and yet never rejected. So many of us, our greatest fear is being exposed, of being known. So we keep people at an arm's distance. 
We say, hey, you can know me, but only what I choose to share or only what I choose to post. Our deep fear is that if anybody really got that close to us, they would know something or see something and they wouldn't love us, they'd actually reject us. But the good news of Christmas is that the word becomes flesh. God comes and he's near us and with us. He knows us fully, but nothing that he discovers causes him to love us less. And everything to him is exposed. And he does not reject us. In fact, he moves towards us that he might have a relationship with us. So if you're wondering in this season, what's God's like? Look at Jesus. If you want to get to know God, then get to know Jesus. See, what we need in knowing to Jesus is not merely grace or truth. What we need is grace and truth. All too often we're like, man, I need grace or they need truth. I'm somebody who's really about grace. I'm somebody who's really about truth. And there has never been a moment where we have not needed both the grace of God, and the truth of God. And that's why when Jesus comes, full of the glory of God, he comes not 50% grace and 50% truth. He doesn't come with grace in this moment and truth in this moment. He comes 100% God and 100% man, 100% grace and 100% truth, because that is what we need deeply and personally. And often that's easy to talk about. It's kind of ethereal, but I want to make it concrete. And as Josh said, in this month, in December, as a part of these messages, we're going to be sharing with you somebody's story that puts skin on the things that we're talking about. And as he said earlier, this is a sign that if you don't want your younger kids to be a part of this conversation, if you're watching at home, I'd encourage you to send them to another room or step out of the room for a second. But I'm going to invite Jake, who was up here earlier, back on the stage our worship director. So Jake, there you are, sneaking in the back. You want to give him a round of applause? Good morning. Good morning. So uh, I noticed a couple weeks ago uh, that I think it was like November 23rd was your one-year anniversary. Yeah. So we are so glad to have you here. You've made a huge impact on our, our staff, our church. Um, we're grateful to be led by you every week. Some people might not know this, but when we found you, you can give him a round of applause for that. We found you through a search firm. Mm-hmm. So we hired a firm, and they uh, put together kind of a, a package of questions that any candidate had to answer. And so you spent a lot of time answering a lot of questions before we even met you. Yeah, it took me a month. <laughs> it was a lot. There was a lot to read when yeah. we, we got your packet. And so when we kind of heard about you, mm-hmm. I got a long email, a big PDF, and sat down with a cup of coffee and just started reading through it. And there came a point in there where, especially in like an interview section, you were incredibly transparent. And that doesn't always happen with candidates. And so you shared a story about a season in your life and a part of your life that included some really hard stuff, some serious struggles. And as I was getting ready for this message, I thought of you and your story. I said, hey, would you be willing to come up on stage and share? And you said yes. So would you let us know and begin to talk about that? Yeah. So just to give us a little bit of a background so that it makes sense. I grew up um, in a Christian home. My parents were involved in ministry. Uh, I mean, I was in a a stroller while they were doing stuff so um i gave my life to christ at six um and i've been trying to follow jesus ever since um i stepped into my first kind of volunteer ministry position right around the age of 12 sixth grade for me um on the worship team at the church i grew up in um and right at that same time um i just realized i think i told you earlier that i just realized that this week 
<clears throat> right at the same time was the first time that I was exposed to pornography. Um, which is, isn't that just like the devil? Mm-hmm. Um, so as I'm working out uh, and beginning to recognize a calling for my life, um, I have this shadow side that I'm just struggling all the time. And so that started when I was 12. Um, it continued all through high school. I'm pretty, I was pretty superstitious. And uh, I didn't get this theology from my parents or from the church I grew up in. Um, they were very much not a works-based thing. But I always viewed my salvation as like a ladder. Um, where if I did enough good things and did enough of the right things that I would keep climbing rungs on that ladder. And then when I would mess up and do something that would make God upset, I'd fall back down to the bottom and then I'd have to work myself back up again. Um, and so like I can remember in high school, um, I played high school basketball. Um, and I was convinced that if I did not look at pornography the night before a game that we would win. And that if I did look at pornography the night before we would lose, we lost a lot. I don't think it had anything to do with me other than not hitting enough points. But um, so that just kind of continued to snowball. I mean, at the time when it started, it was everything was magazines, the Internet. If you live in a world where you don't remember the Internet, um, it wasn't really there when I was 12. Um, but it was coming into its own pretty good when I was in the end of high school and going into college age. And so it just kept spiraling and kept getting worse. And I, I knew I didn't want to do it, but I couldn't stop myself from doing it. And it became pretty pretty obvious pretty quickly that it was um that it was an addiction and so uh, I thought getting married would fix it and so Jen and I got married in um, July of 2002 um and maybe you don't know this or you do but one of the really sad things that pornography addiction does is it gives you a very unrealistic picture of what intimacy is supposed to look like in a marriage um and so it didn't fix things getting married it kind of made things worse and so I kept going darker and darker and um we'd been our first anniversary in 2003 um i had planned this great night at least i thought i did um i got home from work earlier than jen did and so i had laid out like this nice blanket on the floor and i had candles and roses and i had made her dinner and we were going to have like a picnic lunch dinner thing in our living room and then i was going to do what every guy wanted to do on his first anniversary so i thought Except for she came home and confronted me because somehow, in some way, she had found that I had been looking at stuff I shouldn't have been. And so um, we were serving at a local church. Um, the guy who was kind of over us was the worship pastor slash youth pastor. And she was like, you know, we have, I think it was a Tuesday when she found out. Wednesday we had Wednesday night service and rehearsal. She's like, I want you to talk with him and just see if he can help you. And so I did. Um, my transparency like openness wasn't, isn't something that's super new. Um, and so I shared with him that Wednesday night and, uh, his response to me was, okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, we have services on Sunday and Wednesday. That's when you serve on the worship team every Sunday or Wednesday. When you come in, I'm going to ask you, have you looked at, um, pornography at all this week? And if your answer is no, good to go. Come on up and you can help lead worship that day. And if the answer is yes, you're just going to take a seat and we'll wait until the next time. Um, which to my 23-year-old brain sounded like a really great idea. Um, except for what it did was it just drove me deeper and darker into the darkness. I became really good at lying. Um, every Sunday and every Wednesday, he would faithfully come to me and say, hey, you've been having any struggles this week? No, man, it's been good. Thanks for praying for me. Let's, let's worship tonight. Uh, because worship had become such an important part of my life at that point, and it was really the place where I connected with God the most. And so as I'm desperate here, 
wanting this to go away and wanting to connect with God and asking him to heal me. Um, and the last thing I wanted to do was not be able to be in that environment and doing that. Um, and so I just, I just hid. When you think about that hiding, um, we're talking about this idea of God with us. Mm. Um, in those moments when you were struggling, in those moments when you were beginning to have a double life and deceive him and deceive Jen, if you could put yourself back in your shoes 20 years ago, yeah, the idea of God with us, what would you have thought about that? So I remember being in high school and thinking that um, as I would go into either my room to look at magazines or later on to the computer that um, I would be like, okay, God, I'm going to go do this. You hang out back here. I'll, I'll be back. Like he wasn't with me. Um, it became very apparent to me during that time frame um, as I was just kind of growing in my faith that um, he was right there with me every time. Um, that every time I logged onto my computer to look at something, he was sitting right there with me and weeping and it was breaking his heart. Um, it was breaking his heart for me because that's not what he wanted for me. He was breaking his heart for my wife. Um, it was breaking his heart for his children that were the images on that screen that are created in his image that um, are also going through their own pain and, and stuff. And so uh, I didn't really love that at that point. Uh, it made me pretty upset because I wanted to feel like I could shed that, do my thing, and then come back. I'm sorry, and we could just move on. Mm. So somewhere <laughs> along the way, though, this is what you described. And this is how we learned about it because the mm. question in our, our packet you know, addressed this you uh, had moved on staff full-time at a church. Yep. You'd had a conversation there that, that ended up being pretty life-changing for yeah. you. So um, that co confrontation with Jen and the one pastor was in 2003. In 2007, I was volunteering at a different church we had moved, and they, um, they'd asked me to come on staff at their church as their worship pastor, um, which was a dream come true because it's what I knew God had, had called me to do and what I knew I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And... Um, so I said yes, and I came on staff, but the problem was I was still struggling. I mean, it wasn't a daily uh, thing, but it was, it was often enough that it was still a problem. And I was pretty open with the guys that I worked with, the other pastors, that it was an issue for me. And so um, one of the things we did to just kind of help each other, because the, rea the reality is, is um, I don't know the exact statistics, but they say uh, specifically in churches, it's like eight or nine out of ten guys struggle with some form of lust or um, pornography or something and then the other one guy is lying um, <laughs> and so you know it's like one of those things where all the guys like you know it could be any of us any of us could have this happen and so we we partnered up with different accountability partners different pastors on staff and we put a software on each of our computers and um, if you're a rebellious spirit like I am um, most of the softwares that people use to try to keep people from looking at stuff on the internet, they shouldn't block you from doing those things and try to stop you or filter, only let certain things through. Um, I was always the type that if you told me I couldn't do something, I was going to try to find a way around it. Um, so we didn't use that type of software. This was a software that um, me and one other guy, uh, he was my accountability partner, I put his email in and the, it just ran in the background of my computer and any time I would look at something that would be... Um, potentially inappropriate, not necessarily it was, but potentially, um, it would send an email to him. It didn't stop me, didn't flag anything on my end, it just flagged on his end. And so there had been plenty of times where he'd shown up in my office at different times, go, hey, this popped up, what was that? And it was nothing, um, except for this one day. When uh, I had had a bad day, something had happened, I don't know if Jen and I were fighting, something, and I spent about maybe 15 or 20 minutes 
um, that night after she went to bed looking at some stuff on my computer at home. And the next morning, um, I'm in my office doing some work, and he comes and knocks on the door, says, can I, can I talk to you for a second? I'm like, yeah, sure, come on in. He shuts the door. He says, hey, I got an email last night. Is everything okay? And I was like, you got an email? About what? He's like, well, it, it said you were, you know, looking at some stuff. Is, every, is everything all right? And I go, oh, that wasn't me. My computer was here all night long. Um, which really was true. Um, my work computer was on my desk all night. Um, and that was the computer that we had, computers that we had collectively decided we were going to put this software on. Uh, what he didn't know is I also put it on my home computer, which looking back now was probably the smartest thing I ever did. At the time, I was really pissed that I had done that because I was getting caught. Um, so I was like, yeah, no, man, my computer was here all night. I didn't, it wasn't me. He's like, all right, cool, thanks, man, see you later. And he spent the rest of the day looking through um, security logs and cameras and stuff, trying to figure out who had come in the building and potentially got access to my office and my computer to look at stuff. And um, as the day went on, I just got more and more angst, more and more anxious and angry. And I got home. Jen was like, what is the matter with you? I'm like, nothing, leave me alone. It was probably about 2.30, and I still wasn't sleeping, tossing and turning, just real. I mean, I was struggling. When uh, she's like, will you just tell me what's going on? And I broke. Um, and I told my wife what had happened. I'm pretty sure she thought in 2003 when we had that conversation and I talked to the pastor that that was it. You know, man, I married to a man that did the hard work that needed to be done and he got people praying for him and he's, he's successful. She, I don't think she had any idea that it had been years and it had just gotten worse. Um, we went back and forth. I was convinced at that point that ministry was over for me. I think I'd been in ministry maybe two or three years. I knew that's what God had called me to do, and I'd seen too many times in the church where somebody had had some sort of moral failure, and that was the end. So I thought that was the end for me, and um, she said, you need to call him. It's like, if I call him, I'm unemployed. We've got kids. We've got no money. Like, and she said, um, whatever happens, I love you, and I'm with you, which is clearly not the answer she had to give. Um, at that point, if you believe what Scripture tells I was committing adultery against my wife, and she had every reason to leave. Um, I didn't year, realize till 10 or 15 years later the impact that that amount of grace had on me in that moment. And so about 3 in the morning, I pick up the phone, and I call my friend, Kevin, who, if you're watching this, um, thank you. And uh, I said, hey, remember we were talking earlier today? Like, I'm trying to talk as a normal conversation. It's 3 in the morning. <laughs> He's sounding all groggy. I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? <laughs> Um, it's like, yeah, I told you that I, you know, my computer was there all night, that it wasn't me. And I was like, you know, the fact that my computer was there all night is true. I was like, what I didn't tell you was I also put the software on my home computer and it was me. Sorry, I lied to you. I'm really sorry. And I expected at that moment, like the hammer's coming down, like his response would have been like, okay, tomorrow morning you need to be there at eight. He was the youth pastor at the time. You, me, and the lead pastor were meeting. Like, this can't happen. We're going to have to figure out what we're going to do to protect the church. Like, I thought that's where... It was going, and it was a pause in the line for a minute or a second, and then he said, uh, I love you. How can I help? Yeah. And it was at that moment, I mean, it wasn't an instant cure uh, of the issue, but it was at that moment that I f first felt like there was some sort of breaking of some sort of chain, some freedom um, from that, because even though the truth was there, um, he had, both my wife and him had shown me incredible grace that I didn't deserve. I mean, I didn't, I was not taken off staff at the church. Um, he spent years, still does, 
Um, he's still my accountability partner on all of my computers. Um, and he walked with me and he's held my hand when I'm struggling. He's picked me up when I've fallen. Um, and I think that that moment not only saved my ministry, but it saved my life and my marriage. So when you think back to the idea of God with us now, mm. you know, and you think about what happened then and the journey you've been on since then, yeah. what has changed, what is different, what has transformed? So it's interesting because I think the, what I think of God with us now is the same thing. It, but I have a very different perspective on it, is that in those moments when I'm struggling, when I'm facing that temptation, which I, I've learned this past that moment, but um, I used to always think that those were always the devil trying to get me to look at stuff. Um, and I'm not the type that really does well with like, in James chapter, I just, I mean, scripture sinks in, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily remember what it was. So you were telling me, I think it's in James mm-hmm. in the first service, where it's like the temptations that we have, um, those are from inside us. The devil's not the one that makes me want to look at pornography. He uses that. And he knows when I'm weak and he puts things in front of me to, you know, entice. But that, that sinfulness, that is, is from in here. Um, so knowing that one and then God with us, knowing that he is with me all of the time. And the verse that I stand on specifically when I'm struggling is uh, that there is no temptation that is too great and that he will provide a way out. First Corinthians 10, 13. Yeah, he'll provide an escape. And it's like, there have been times where it's like, I am having a hard time. God, where's the escape? Where's the escape? And so I've done a lot of work. I'm, Jen and I have much more open conversations about things now um, where I understand what my triggers are and the things that are going to start me down that path. And so I can stop them before I get down there. But um, yeah, it's the same thing I was mad about with him being right there with me in the midst of my pain and ugliness and dirtiness um, before is the same thing I'm so grateful for now because when those things come out of me as like a desire, he's right there and I can immediately look straight to him and go, where's the escape? I need you in this moment. There was something um, you told me. We were talking about uh, our our church values. We've got a value that says pursuing health together. It was one of the first values we discussed when we started talking to you. And in that value, it says that we, we value... Uh, pursuing health together, which means that we welcome the hurting, mm-hmm. we, sh- we show and share the struggle, and we trust in Jesus' power yeah. to heal us. Yeah. Um, and there's a part of this sharing today that's a part of you kind of continuing to walk out the healing yeah. you're in. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I first was found out, it's all that shame and fear that people are going to reject you. Um, and the more that I have grown in my faith from that time to now, um, I jump at every opportunity to tell people my story uh, for a couple of different reasons. One, because I'm broken and I'm in deep need of a savior. Um, and you see me up here leading worship and you think I'm passionate. Well, I'm passionate because he saved me from the pit. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. Amen. Um, but when I was in the midst of that, everything was in the dark. Nobody knew. And the more often that I bring it into the light, the more healing that I have from that. And, you know, Scripture talks about that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, which is true. Every time that I've looked at pornography or had a lustful thought that was sin, essentially every time I've committed adultery on my wife, Jesus paid for that on the cross on my behalf because he knew I couldn't do it on my own. But the second part of that verse says that we overcome by the word, blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. If you're not talking about it, if you're not telling people about it, 
because you're afraid of the shame, you're still in the dark. And the freedom can't come until you begin to share. And so um, I've grown to love as much as it's disgusting and I hate it. Um, I love to share it because every time I walk away from sharing that with people, a few things happen. One, um, it has less power over me um, because had one of you found out that I had an issue of pornography in another context and passed me in the hallway, you'd be looking at me funny sideways and I'd be like, well, maybe they know, I don't know. Well, now you all know. It doesn't matter anymore because I'm, it's covered by what Jesus did. Um, so there's that. And then the second is that um, I've had so many opportunities to do what Kevin did for me, where when I share my story, um, other people will come and say, man, I'm really struggling and I can say, I love you. And how can I help? And so I'd encourage everyone, uh, your story may not be pornography, it may be anger, it may be alcohol, it may be drugs, it may be you spend too much money. Uh, like it could be any of these things. Um, you need to be telling people what God set you free from for their benefit, but also for yours to remind yourself of what Jesus has done. And uh, it just has less power every time. Well, I'm grateful uh, for you uh, feeling free in this mm. space and for you saying yes when I reached out. So we want to continue to give God glory for what he's doing in your life. Amen. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks, well, it's hard to make a transition after that, but I'm going to do my best right here. I want to encourage you to take some steps in light of what you've heard today. And if you're taking notes, these are in the back of your handout. The first one is I want to encourage you to do what Jake did. I want to encourage you to inventory your life for any areas where you're preferring darkness to light. Like we said earlier, not, not everybody wants God with them because if God's with you, it means that light is with you. And you may be preferring darkness to light. So if there's a place in your life, go figure out what that is. Identify what those areas are. Two, I, I want to encourage you this week to share the Madeline Langle quote we talked about earlier with a trusted friend and, and discuss what it means to show the people around you a light so lovely. I'll remind you because it's been a little bit. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are, how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want it with all their hearts to know the source of it. And that's really what Jake shared with us, the, the change in his desire to see the light. And then finally, number three, I want to encourage you today, before you leave, identify what your next step is based upon how you heard God speaking through my message and through Jake's story. And, and, and I'd encourage you, take that step without unnecessary delay. So often we know what to do, but we defer it. And the longer we wait, the harder it gets. It's never going to get easier than right now to take that step God's put on your heart. And, and yet on the other side of that step is freedom, is healing, is God's power, is God's strength. And so I'd encourage you, if you are feeling stirred today to take a step, to have a conversation, to do something never done before, take that step today. Would you stand with me right now? We're going to pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for the fact that, that you are with us. You're not in the other room. You're not on the other side of the door. You're not distant, but you've come near us, not just to be present with us, but that we might become someone we've never become before. We might become part of your family. We become your child, your son, your daughter. We might become forgiven, new, clean, free. I don't know where each person in this room, each person who's watching at home or each person who will watch or hear this later is. 
not only where they are physically, but where they are in terms of their heart and their soul with you. But I trust that your word does not return void and that you are powerfully present and speaking right now in this moment. So whatever steps you want them to take, I pray that you would stir up in them. In the places where they're resisting you, I pray like Jake, you would keep them up at night and keep them from running from you. And I pray that when they take that step, that they would meet your grace, that they would meet your love, and that they would know that you have paid for whatever it is that's happened to them. And because of that, and because of the testimony they'll one day give, they can overcome, they can be set free.